1988, my mom was sitting in an RV uh, in a state park in Colorado. Uh, my grandmother was sitting across uh, the room from her uh, playing solitaire. And uh, moms, you'll relate, you'll understand. Uh, she was in heaven. It was quiet. Her young children, uh, my sister and I, and we're with my dad and my grandfather out playing, uh, and she had the entire place just still. She was finishing up a, a good book and looking out the window uh, at this beautiful rolling and rushing river that was going through the middle of the park and mountains behind it, uh, just in a state of bliss. And it was in that moment uh, that she felt like she heard uh, the voice of Jesus speak to her and say, go down to the river. She thought, that's kind of silliness. I'm here. This is the best. Why would I leave this? I don't get a lot of this. I don't get a lot of peace and quiet. I want to enjoy it. And so she stayed. And then she had finished her book, and she's beginning to transition in her mind, you know, thinking about dinner and all the other things, but not wanting to lose that moment. And again, she heard within her spirit, hey, go down to the river. And she's like, why? why? I don't want to go down the river. I don't want to lose that. I want to enjoy this as long as I can. If I go down the river, I might run into one of my children. I don't want to do that. And so this time, to distract herself, she actually went over and joined my grandmother and said, hey, do you want to play a game of cards together? And they said yes. And so they started playing cards together. And uh, a couple of hands in, she again heard Jesus say, Susan, go down to the river. Go down to the river. My mom won't tell you that it was an audible voice if she was here reflecting that story. Uh, but what she would have said is that it was the loudest inaudible voice she had ever heard. And so she said, I don't, I, I don't get this. I'm going to go. And awkwardly had to explain to my grandmother after just asking to start a game of cards with her, now saying, no, I don't want to play cards with you. I got to go down to the river. My grandma says, why? She's like, I don't know. And then she goes down the river and she stands on the bank and she looks around. She's like, all right, all right, Jesus, what? And there's nothing. I mean, it's pretty, and, but she was seeing that from the air conditioning. She's about to turn around, and when she turns around, she looks upstream, and a child who's young enough to not maybe swim, but not swim there, not in the Russian current, is just toppling end over end, barely staying above water, and is floating down the river. So she rushes down to the edge, she grabs hold of a tree, she leans out as far as she can, she grabs the hand and pulls out her four-year-old son, me. That's why she needed to go down to the river. So I can be standing here today. My mom had an encounter with Jesus that day. You know, and, and growing up, uh, and once they become f into faith, maybe you can relate to the same thing. I, I wanted encounters like that. You know, I had heard encounters like that. I talked to other believers who had, um, again, maybe not in an audible sense or, or maybe not in a physical presence, but had had an encounter with Jesus that, that changed their lives, that shaped them forever. And I longed for that for so long uh, in, my, in my early faith years. And what I was cheapening of myself while longing for that was I don't think it's bad for us to long for that. I don't even think it's bad for us to ask for that. But what I was cheapening myself was that there's plenty of encounters with Jesus right here in God's word recorded for me. And that the same spirit that dwells inside me illuminating the scripture can bring me face to face with Jesus and have him confront and transform my heart and do the miraculous. So that's what we're going to do for the next couple of weeks. We're going to take a look, uh, primarily in the Gospel of John, 
uh, in chapters 3 and 4, we're going to look at some encounters with Jesus. We're going to see from John's even depictions here why Jesus matters. Again, it's kind of helpful anytime you're reading a book to understand the background of it. Um, John is the is, is the last written gospel. All the other gospels are written, and several years have passed. And, passed, and John writes his gospel account. Um, it's likely it's the Ephesian elders asked him to recall his memories of Jesus because he writes the gospel very differently. All the gospels kind of have the personality of their author and their intent. What he does, he writes it in a in a very unique structure. He's less concerned with the historical account of Jesus, but he's more, he's entirely concerned with presenting Jesus as God, a deity. Jesus' deity is, is one of his main themes throughout. And one of the ways that he does that is he chooses uh, seven miraculous signs and then their interpretation. And then, and then he also throws in there these I am statements, seven of them which are metaphorical, five of them are very concrete about who God is, that he, who Jesus is, that he is God. Um, And then he intermixes into that um, an account of over 20 uh, interviews, per se, interactions, encounters with Jesus, oftentimes from Jesus having a a conversation with somebody else or two people having a conversation about him. We get these 27 interviews. And what is really interesting is John's theology is shaped through dialogue, shaped through conversation. Um, and I think I wish it was more true of our culture today, right? Because if we really want to know what somebody believes, then we need to just talk to them, and we're going to find out. I mean, how great would it be if, if we realized that um, as a nation? I think too, too often we uh, want to think we know what somebody believes and not talk to them about it, but just judge them on their beliefs. What if we actually solved a lot of problems by just talking to those people? I think that's what we get. John presents this dialogue so that we run into Jesus again and are convinced of his uh, deity as a personal God. So let's look at our first encounter. We're going to be in John uh, chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to John chapter 3. We'll be in the first verse to start. If you don't have a Bible with you, um, you can look down into the racks in front of you and grab one of those. Um, I will say if you don't have a Bible of your own, please take that as a gift. Um, It'll be... uh, uh, a blessing for us for you to have it and a blessing for you to read it. Again, we're going to be on page 887 of that in John chapter 3, reading out of the uh, English Standard Version. And this is where we meet our first character, verse 1. Now there is a man of the Pharisees, highlight Pharisees, named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Important highlight ruler of the Jews. Because to understand a conversation, we have to rightly understand the people talking in the conversation, right? To fully appreciate what is being said, you need to know some about of who is saying it. And so here we're introduced to our first character, Nicodemus, right? You know, this idea of importance of knowing who, we're talk- who is talking so that we know what we're talking about um, struck me all the more even this week when I was in the grocery store. And while rounding an aisle, I had heard a lady speak, no, honey, we cannot live on just eating brownies alone. And as I rounded the corner, I see this woman standing across facing, who I assume is her husband. And they both kind of stop and look at me, and I kind of like, I can't help it. I'm just starting to grin, because I'm like, this is hilarity. Thank you for letting me see this. 
in which the husband's putting two and two together, looking at me, and so he immediately steps out of the way and says she was talking to him, their little son, who he was blocking my view of, right? Who talks, knowing the character of who talks, shapes the entire conversation. And so today we're going to look at this man, Nicodemus, and we have two descriptors here. Who is Nicodemus? The first one is that he is a Pharisee. Now, a lot of us probably have negative, uh, automatically start that as a negative towards Nicodemus, that we hear that as a condemnation. This is because Jesus, our Lord, speaks very harshly towards Pharisees. But I don't think that the original audience would have heard that as such a harsh condemnation. In fact, when I found myself trying to explain this, I really was just trying to resummarize Larry Osborne's words in his book, Accidental Pharisee. So instead of resummarizing and not doing justice, I'm going to read them to you today. Um, by the way, Accidental Pharisee is a, is a pretty good book, especially if you find yourself more of the legalistic bent or more of the coming from pride. Um, pick it up. It will be worth your while. But this is what he says. Today, when most of us hear the word Pharisee, we conjure up images of hypocritical, narrow-minded, puffed-up spiritual losers But in Jesus' day, being called a Pharisee was a badge of honor. It was a compliment, not a slam. I don't think they would have heard it with the same disposition we would have heard it. They would have heard this first introduction of Nicodemus as a Pharisee as a very positive thing. He goes on to say, that's because first century Pharisees excelled in everything we admire spiritually. They were zealous for God. They completely committed to their faith. They were theologically astute, masters of biblical texts. They fastidiously obeyed even the most obscure commands. They even made up extra rules just in case they were missing anything. Their embrace of the spiritual discipline was second to none. They were paying a price that no one else was willing to pay. They were the top of the top the cream of the crop. In the Jewish world, the Pharisees were the, the, the elitists. They were the ones who have made it, right? You know, Jesus even knew this and recognized it in his famous uh, sermon, Sermon on the Mount, on the Mount that we have recorded uh, starting in Matthew 5, um, where he's, he's trying to talk to a, a wide audience and he's, he's trying to tell them uh, that it's, it's not based on your merit, that earns your salvation. You can't manufacture righteousness. And he does so by taking the Mosaic law uh, and expounding upon it. He uses this familiar catchphrase. You have heard it said this, but I tell you this. What you've said this is always kind of what the Pharisees have taught, what the Old Testament says. But I tell you even more, right? He says things like, you've heard it said, do not murder, but I tell you If you look at your brother and call him Raka, fool, it is like you've committed murder in your heart. He ramps it up. You've heard it say not to commit adultery, but I tell you, even who looks at your, uh, uh, looks at another woman with lust has committed adultery in your heart. You've heard it said, love your neighbor. I tell you, love your enemy, right? He's ramping this up. And what he does with these six kind of teaching and commands, he bookends it with some really interesting phrases. Um, The first one uh, is, is in... Matthew 5.20, that says, uh, this is how he starts before moving into these six commands. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses those of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This has got to be crushing. Unless your righteousness surpasses even the best of the best, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. If that wasn't enough, he concludes it in 48 by saying, be perfect, because your heavenly Father is perfect. How are we doing on that one, guys? 
Not so much, right? But that's the point. That's what Jesus was trying to do. He was trying to say that this isn't merit of your own that leads to your salvation. You can't do this. And he points to their elitists. He points to how the Pharisees are trying everything. If anybody else was even close to getting it right, it would have been them, and they still can't get it. But Nick was not just a Pharisee, but he was also a ruler of Jews. Now, if this was anywhere but Jerusalem, we may have a different interpretation of it. But since it is Jerusalem, then we know what this term means is that he's not just a Pharisee. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin was a Jewish ruling body. Think of it about as the religious supreme court of the day. They did things like uh, wrote laws, uh, tried heresy, um, spoke to kind of uh, teachings and defined kind of what the the Jewish tenets really were. It was a, a member of 71 people. So you have all the Pharisees, and then you have the Sanhedrin, all the elites, and then you have the elite of the elite, and Nicodemus was part of that crowd. Not only is he part of that crowd, he's also mentioned in verse 4 as being old. Again, maybe one thing that we take not so positively in our culture, there they took very positively as a sign of respect. Not only is the top of the top Pharisee, not only is he one of the 71 Sanhedrin, he's also one of the old guys of it. He's wise. He's been doing it for a while. And then we even get this thing in verse 10. If that isn't enough, in verse 10, Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel. Not a teacher of Israel, one of the teachers of Israel. High of the high of the high. If religion would get you in, this guy was in. I think we have to understand that to understand this conversation because that man, top of the top, cream of the crop, a Pharisee, a Sanhedrin, an old guy, and even a teacher of Israel. That guy is about to meet Jesus. So what's going to be said? With a pedigree and a background like that, how do you think this conversation plays out? Maybe Nicodemus is entering in expecting to go meet with this new rabbi and get Jesus to say, hey, Nick, great job. High five. This religion thing, nailed it. Good job. You got this, right? I don't know. What we do know is that we have in verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one else can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And the first point that we want to talk about is probably one that's very popularized. If you've heard Nicodemus taught a lot, um, this is always kind of the first point is that he came by night. Why did he come by night? Um, you know, recently it's been more popularized to talk about how Nicodemus is coming in his own spiritual darkness and in his darkest hour at nighttime uh, to Jesus. And they make the, you know, a lot of teachers will then say, you in your darkest hour should turn to Jesus like Nicodemus did. And I'm not really making a ton of light of that. Um, John uses imagery like that. And we'll even get to some throughout his entire, um, throughout his entire book. Um, probably the other one that's been relatively popularized uh, as well is that he's, that he's coming at night because it's really practical. Um, and he, he doesn't, he doesn't want to set his allegiance by meeting this man. He doesn't want to put kind of his reputation on the line by taking a meeting with Jesus. So he goes at night so he's not observed. Um, or maybe it's even more practical than that. Maybe he just had a long day of doing Jewish law stuff. He's just getting off work. Who knows? But he comes by night. But then what is more interesting is he doesn't start with a question. He starts with a statement. He starts with a statement. Look what he says. Rabbi. This is a, this is a term meaning teacher, right? This is a respectful term. This is one of a position of honor. Rabbi. 
He's acknowledging there's something different about Jesus. Maybe that's why he's there. He wants to know if he's a, just a rabbi or is he also a prophet. Maybe that's what he's coming to find out. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. It's an interesting pronoun, we. He's the only one there having the conversation, but he's not speaking just of himself. He's speaking in the plural. We know that you are this. Again, a lot of commentators go back and forth on what exactly he's doing by speaking in we. Maybe he's, you know, just, again, an individual speaking in a corporal sense. A lot of people say that that's to protect his uh, reputation again. It's, it's a lot more dangerous to say, I know you're this, but we, I'm not really convinced of that because what the we he represents are not the men who believe this. He wouldn't want to risk that. I think he's speaking of another individual. I think he's, he's there for his own questions, but also for somebody else. But we'll get back to that. But he does say that he realizes that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Again, John is entirely concerned with Jesus' deity, right? And so here he is making an account or a witness for his deity by these miracles. This would have been something for the Jew that they would have expected. No right Jew would have heard a new teaching without the accompaniment of some kind of sign or blessing or witness or authority from the Godhead. And oftentimes that was miracles. So here they are seeing Jesus' miracles, hearing a new teaching. And so Nicodemus comes and makes this proclamation, Rabbi, we know that you're from God. It's a polite, courteous, honoring statement to Jesus. But look how Jesus replies. Verse 3, Jesus answers him. What does he answer? Nicodemus didn't ask a question. He made a statement. But Jesus answers him. Jesus jives right in. He answers the question he didn't even ask. He wants to cut straight to the heart of the issue. I know two people who do that extremely well. Jesus and again my mom. I look up at her and she says, no, you can't jump off that. Why? I didn't even ask anything. No, you can't climb that. No, you need to stay here and be quiet. But again, I digress. That's what got me into the problem we talked about in the beginning. Jesus answers. Look at this answer that Jesus offers. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, this phrase at the end, see the kingdom of God, this was, again, probably familiar to Nicodemus, who's familiar to all Jews. And they would clearly see this phrase, seeing the kingdom, as a uh, future promise hope for all of the nation of Israel to one day see the kingdom of God. They, because they're God's chosen people, will in the age to come, at the end of time, will see the kingdom of God actualized for us. Not like a medieval kingdom, king, knightship thing that we try to go to, but more as a, again, a, a theocracy, a, a governing body who's ruled by God. They expected to participate in his kingdom, and that was to come. So I think this is a very surprising statement for Nicodemus, because what he probably expected Jesus to say was unless you are a Jew, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Because that's the point, right? All Jews got to see the kingdom. I mean, except for those that blasphemed or did really bad stuff. But other than that, that was the promise that they were teaching. That's what Nicodemus taught. That's what he probably expected. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, unless you are born again. It's a really interesting word, this, this word born again. Some translations, if you're reading in one that's not the ESV, says... Um, uh, says describes this this being born um, again as uh, being born from above. 
Um, and that's actually not all that inaccurate because the same Greek word that means again also means above or from on top. Uh, and so a lot of commentators, again, go back and forth on, on what Jesus is using. And it complicates things even more because Nicodemus replies clearly on the again side because we're about to see that he questions, what do you mean I crawl back into my mother's room to be born again? But then later, Jesus teaches more from, it's a birth from above. He brings back this imagery from above. So I actually think that it's probably both. Jesus is using this word intentionally to mean both again and from above, that this is a special birth. It's a new birth. This is a new teaching for Je- for, uh, from Jesus to Nicodemus. He's been teaching his whole life, hey, I'm the top of the top, and here's how we need to achieve seeing the kingdom of God. We need to achieve it by our actions. But we have this shocking statement. No, even you, Nicodemus, have to be born again. Even you aren't in. You know, I think the principle would be that if, if the rule applies to the greatest, it applies to us all, right? If Nicodemus can't get in, then surely you can't get in. Surely I can't get in. I think that is something that's appropriate, right? We would see this even practically uh, for maybe those of y'all who are, are sports fans or hockey fans, right? I would say um, perhaps definitively that Wayne Gretzky is the greatest hockey player of all time. And even if you disagree with that, there's somewhere in the back of your mind there going, yeah, I understand why you're saying that, right? You don't do four seasons back-to-back of 200-plus points all in a row in the early 80s. You don't, you don't hold these, these NHL records that are still in existence, over 900 career goals, over 2,000 career, almost 2,000 career assists, right? You don't get to that state without being the best. You know, and if in practice, if the coach walks up and he's just kind of flustered with the guy's lackluster attempt and he says, you know what, guys, everybody on the team, I want you to go back to the basics. I want you to sprint lines. We're going to do full court line sprints, do a hundred of them, and I'm out of here, right? And what do you think all those players are now faced with? Do we obey the coach or do we just go out of here too? What are they faced with? Well, they probably look to Wayne, right? And if Wayne gets out there and starts sprinting, what do you think everybody else does? They start sprinting, Right? If it's good enough for him, well, it's got to be good enough for me. Or maybe you're not a sports fan, and maybe you're a music fan, so this, is, this would maybe be, uh, in my humble opinion, that uh, Yo-Yo Ma is the greatest cello player of all times. And um, <clears throat> I'm not saying that because he's the only one I can name, right? Uh, <laughs> but let's say you're at a, at a rehearsal, and the and things just aren't coming together. And the conductor just kind of says again in frustration, he's like, we're going to come back to this. I'm going to leave now for an hour. I want you to do nothing, but go back to the basic. Practice your scales. And then the conductor leaves. All eyes go to Yo-Yo Ma, right? If Yo-Yo Ma grabs his cello and starts playing his scales, what does everybody else do? They play their scales. Because if it's good enough for Yo-Yo, it's good enough for me, me, right? <laughs> and it's free. The rule applies to grace, applies to us all. So we must see ourselves here in this story. If Nicodemus needs to be born again, then how much more should we or should I? It is perhaps in this frustration with this point, something new, something counter to his whole life's message. Nicodemus, maybe with frustration, says in verse 4, How can man be born where he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I mean, I think this is Nicodemus saying, Jesus, I'm a made man. I'm there. If anybody's got this, I got this. What do you mean I have to do something else? 
I think he's frustrated and he's probably just looking to dismiss Jesus. Now his opinion of him as a rabbi is starting to diminish because he's now confronted him and says, there's one more thing. So he's saying, I'm going to trip you up. And that's crazy talk. You can't crawl back into your mom. It doesn't work that way. But Jesus answers again, trying to get more specific this time. Verse five, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So notice their terms have changed. Jesus has changed it a little bit. Before he was talking about seeing the kingdom. Now he's talking about entering the kingdom. If it was vague then, it's more specific now. In the same way when he's talking about being born again. Now he's saying being born again with water and the spirit. Now this is an interesting phrase here that's caused a lot of commentators a lot of problems. And in fact, just in looking at three different commentaries in preparation for this morning, I saw 10 different views on what this phrase means, water and the Spirit. Uh, and I won't go through all 10 of those. I'll just highlight probably maybe a couple of them that I, that I know at least I had been taught, uh, and you may as well, that I don't think maybe hints at truth, but not accurate to what's here. The first one uh, is, is the reference to uh, water and Spirit being a physical birth and a spiritual birth. This is popular along a, a lot of a lot of Christian scientists who like to say, see, this is Jesus and his divine nature when ambionic fluid wasn't even known, not ambionic, ambiotic fluid was not even known of the time. And he's already saying of water birth. So he's saying this is, you have your water physical birth, but you also need a spiritual birth coming later. Um, that's not probably the case. It gets a little bit technical, but the Greek syntax of relates to both of those. It's one event. It's not two events. So it's not that. The other way I'd heard it taught is uh, like a good Baptist here that this is, this is a reference to baptism. Then you have a spiritual regeneration and thus you immediately reply to that with a water baptism while well, being born of the water too, right? Um, but again, that's perhaps again not so accurate whether we know that that's a truth and a tenant we hold to. Um, it's not accurate probably to this conversation uh, because later Jesus gives a rebuke to Nicodemus, how can you be a teacher of Israel and not understand these things? Well, if it was about baptism, Christian baptism hasn't been instituted yet. We'll get to that later. That'll come in Acts. So how, that would be a really harsh rebuke of Jesus to say, you should have known the things that hasn't even happened yet. So I don't think it's that. But if the context of the rebuke gives us a close hint of what's not the answer, I think it gives us a close hint of what is the answer. I think the commentators are right by looking at what Nicodemus here is probably quickly pulling into mind is the one thing he's an expert of, the Old Testament. And where in the Old Testament do you have water and being born again from the Spirit being tied together? Well, like you're all saying, well, of course, Ezekiel 36 verses 24 through 28, right? We'll read it together because it is a beautiful passage concerning the covenant provinces. It says, I will take from you the nation and gather you, this is God speaking, from all the countries and bring you into my own land. Here's the covenant mentioned. I will sprinkle you clean with water. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit water, spirit, I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will, be, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I give you, give to your, gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. 
covenant again coming. And the fulfillment, looking forward, foreshadowing of Christ, because Christ does this. Our sins we can't remove. We are desperate for Christ's act to wash us of our sins so that he will put a new spirit, in fact, his spirit in us, so that we can live rightly with him. I think Nick probably missed this because he applied it only to the Jewish race as a whole. But the way Jesus applies it here is, one, you. It's individual. This is for everybody. But Jesus continues to explain, look down in verse 6, pulling on some of this imagery again. Uh, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel at what I've said to you. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. He says, don't marvel. This should make sense, right? Flesh only produces flesh. Flesh can't produce spirit. So if you're trying to get righteousness out of your own flesh, if you're trying to get what only the spirit has in your flesh, you're not going to do it. You're only going to produce flesh. But a spirit needs to give spirit. God is the one who will come with water and cleanse. That faith in Jesus is what happens that gives us his spirit, the Holy Spirit. And then there's this great play on words that we miss. This can be our uh, little bit of an intermission Greek lesson for the day. Everybody say pneuma. Oh, you can do better than that. Everybody say pneuma. Everybody say pneumatos. pneumatos. Those, are the, those are the words. It's the same word, different uh, variations of it. Um, basically, the toast meaning of. But it, what it is is it, the word we have, wind, and the word we have at the end of this, spirit, same word. And so it's kind of this beautiful, again, I told you, John uses a lot of imagery like this. And we have this kind of beautiful picture of where the wind blows, it chooses. You don't choose that. It chooses. You feel it, but you don't know when it comes and goes. It chooses that. And the same is the true of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. He chooses. You don't get to dictate. It's not oh, this is my version of righteousness. This is how I will accomplish these things. No, you're not the wind. You're not the spirit. It chooses. And what God has chosen, what the spirit has chosen, what Jesus has chosen, as we just read, was death on a cross. A way and a provision. Faith. Nicodemus' world is entirely turned upside down. I imagine with great frustration in verse 9, he says, how can these things be? I imagine I'm exasperated at this point. I've been teaching it wrong the whole time. How is this possible? Jesus answers in verse 10, are you, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. Again, an interesting pronoun again being used. Nicodemus used it for we and it didn't really make sense because he's just one person. Jesus uses it for we, but he means it for something. Because he can say we, because he represents not just his will, but the will of his Father and the role of the Spirit. This is a great kind of Trinitarian picture here. Again, Jews are all considered with witnesses, and what greater witness of Jesus than he can testify to his own God, Head, the Father, about his service. We can talk about that in Hebrews. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Again, Son of Man, Hebrews, we've talked about this before, so I'll gloss over it. And then this really cool, another reference drawing to mind. 
And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Again, our Old Testament scholar would have hearkened immediately back to Numbers 21, where the Israelites are walking through the wilderness, uh, and venomous snakes are coming into the camp, and they're biting people, and they're dying. They cry out to Moses. Moses cries out to the Lord, what do I do? The Lord says, take a staff, make a bronze snake, put it up in the center of camp, lift it up into the middle of camp so that anytime somebody gets bit, they can look upon that and be saved. Totally illogical, right? Doesn't make sense. I mean, how many of y'all, if you were here and you're just like, all of a sudden a snake went under your chair and bit you, like, oh, I got bit by a snake. And then I say, oh, don't worry. Look at the screen. You'll be fine. No, you're going to say, no, thanks. Take me to the hospital. It's not logical. That's what Jesus is entirely, or that's what God was entirely demonstrating with the nation of Israel, is that it doesn't need to make sense by you. You don't tell the wind where to go. I tell the way that it is. And the way that I'm going to do it is by lifting this up. And what Jesus is doing, that, that Old Testament messianic foreshadowing, he is saying, that will come true in me. I will be lifted up. I will be presented for those to look upon me with faith and belief. Another key aspect of John's gospel. Faith and belief then will be saved, not just physically, but now spiritually. So that's what we got in the conversation. We have Nicodemus, the best of the best, the cream of the crop. If anybody had the right to get in, he would have been it. And Jesus slaps him in the face and says, even you don't have it right. You're not good enough. No one is. You must be born again. And that birth isn't something you can do. That's some pretty harsh news. But the good news and how he closes is that's my job. I'll do what the Spirit does. I'll choose the will of my Father. So believe in me. I think that is, as we talk about application in our closing time, I think that then there's a first and most obvious application here. Um, that if, you've, if you're sitting here and you've never put your faith in Christ, you've never taken that step of belief, um, then do so. Let today be the day of salvation. You know, you may even be sitting here thinking, you know, but that's, that's why I go to church, right? Even on a day when I stayed up too late watching fight commentaries, I'm still here. That's why I give money. That's why I teach a Sunday school class. It's because I'm doing this. But if this is all about what you are doing to earn right status with God, if you're sitting here thinking it's because I just need to be good enough, then I'll get in, then you're missing it, just like Nicodemus missed it. You need to be born again. You need to call out on faith and trust him. Yes, I even think it is possible for an usher, a deacon, a Sunday school teacher, a seminary professor, even a pastor to not be born again. John Piper puts it, new birth is not getting a new religion, it's getting a new life. If you need that new life, don't let today pass you by. I think there's a second application here that in our uh, ticketing down amount of time at the end, I want to talk about, because this one I think applies to all believers, and is a little bit of a comfort, especially as we see Nicodemus' story played out. Because we run into him in two other places. We leave him here not knowing where, what he believes, not knowing if he hears Jesus and changes. We leave him, but then we get this, re, this, this another narrative in John chapter 7, just a few chapters over, where the Pharisees now are, are 
putting things together to be against Jesus. They send some guards out to capture him and bring him back. The guards return empty-handed. And Pharisees then say, what, what are you doing? Why are you empty-handed? The guards in which they reply, the only reply that they have, have you heard this guy teach? He's something special. And then in verse 48, the Pharisees respond to those guards and say, have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd does not know the law is cursed, saying, of course you simple-minded guards don't get this. We elitists are the ones who understand this. No Pharisee is convinced by him. I mean, how great that this is the moment that then if Nicodemus just spoke up and said, you know, as all the Pharisees proclaimed together, no Pharisee has believed in this man. And Nicodemus goes, well, I imagine like, er, what? Everything's going to stop on that. Maybe it's his great opportunity for his first witness of belief. But he doesn't do that. Again, maybe he doesn't believe yet. I don't know. What he does is he cites a procedural thing just to buy some Jesus some more time. It's close. It's a start. But then we run into him again and an interesting, again, narrative. And now, much later on in John 19, Jesus has been crucified. He's been put to death. And then we pick up in verse 38. It says, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus. That is really interesting. Now, again, a new character we're introduced to. What's this character's background? Well, we know from Mark 15, chapter 43, that, that, also, that Joseph also was a member of the Sanhedrin. That he's a Pharisee and a Pharisee of the Pharisees. It continues. Again, it says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him that permission. So here now we're introduced to Joseph. This Pharisee, this Pharisee, also a member of the Sanhedrin. And what he's been doing is he's been living this faith in secret. And we apparently know he believes he's just been doing it in secret, still being a member of the Sanhedrin. But then, and no longer, he can no longer hold it in. He's got to make that public. And this is how he makes it public. He comes and takes the body away. And then who do we see there with him helping? Nicodemus also who had earlier come to Jesus by night. So there, here we have the two Pharisees, two members of the Sanhedrin, the higher of the hires, coming together to make a public proclamation about who they think Jesus is. Remember that we earlier? I kind of think that we is actually talking about Joseph. I think the we is describing Nick and Joe, that they are the ones who are trying to wrestle with who is this Jesus guy? And apparently somewhere in there, Joseph, maybe first, comes to recognize and believe in Jesus because he's described here as a disciple of Jesus. And they can no longer keep that a secret anymore because now he's going and doing a public act. He's taking down Jesus' body and giving him a Jewish burial. This didn't happen. People who were crucified didn't earn Jewish burials. They were taken down, thrown into the garbage pit for the dogs and the ravens to finish them off. They couldn't be holy. They were crucified. But here he's giving him a Jewish burial along with Nicodemus who comes and brings a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices as is the burial custom for the Jews for everybody to see. 
And then look at this, verse 41. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, which no one had yet been laid. We learned that this is a tomb that Joseph owns because he's a pretty well-to-do guy. What's the point of all that? Why did I bring that closing part up together? Because apparently Job put his faith in there. Apparently at some point Nicodemus does too because now he's making this profession. You know what? It's, it's, you crucified him, but he's so much more than that. We're going to give him the burial he needs and deserves. Again, maybe he came to that faith when, G, when, faith when Jesus was lifted up on that cross and he remembered those words. Whatever it is, he finally came to faith. A slow process where both Nick and Joe weren't being public with this now finally come and be on our public. And when they are public about their faith, they're given a huge honor to get to be a part of the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy towards the Messiah. Why is that encouraging to me? I think it's encouraging to me because just like we've talked about, our merit, our good works won't earn salvation. It is a gift of faith. In the same way, it is the same gift of faith that is our participation in the kingdom. It's not our demonstration of faith that earns our participation in the kingdom. So if you're sitting here as a believer and thinking, you know what? Yeah, I can think of that coworker I still haven't talked about. Talk to him about my faith. You know, I can think about that neighbor who I had a conversation with last week who asked me why I do this or why I do that. And I just said it's because I want to be a kind person, but I really missed an opportunity to step out there and boldly make known who I serve. Maybe you can relate, like I can, to Joe and Nick being a little bit slow at this game. But the good news is you're still alive today. And Lord willing, you'll be alive tomorrow. And there will be your opportunity. And even if you're late in life and have never done this well, your entire Christian walk participating in God's kingdom, you can say, tomorrow, this is the day. And maybe even too, God will honor you with the same high honor he gave these two guys. He's not discriminant in his gift of faith and participation. He gives generously to all. So I'm going to invite John to come back up and he's going to close us. I'm going to ask you to, to respond. Maybe it is that you're sitting here and you're part of that first crowd. That you've never stopped and asked. And you still think you're earning it. Today could be the day of salvation. If you have any questions about that, come forward, ask me. Maybe you need to be convicted in thinking of, okay, how am I not participating in this kingdom work? And don't let that guilt just ridden you to inaction. Be comforted, just like our story today. Go and take the next step. Tomorrow's another day that God's going to give you faith. Or maybe you're just, uh, maybe you've been here and you've had some conversations either with Lance or a welcome home team and you want to come and you want to say, I want to try to live in this faith out and getting it right together with this messed up body of believers. You want to come join the church. If you've had those conversations and feel free to come forward. Whatever it is, I'm going to invite you now to stand and respond in song and in prayer for what the Lord has for you.